Welcome. Welcome back. Welcome home. This is Tracy, and we want to thank you for being a part of the Life Together podcast. Before we get into this week's teaching, we want you to know that you matter to God and you matter to us. Life Together is a Wednesday evening gathering for worship, Bible study, and community here at Oak Creek Assembly of God in Oak Creek, Wisconsin. We're going to jump right into the book of Ecclesiastes, and this is an interesting book. How many of you, when you've read this book, you wonder, why is this in the Bible? You know, all throughout the book, Solomon, he's the wisest man who's ever lived, and he's giving us insights into his lifelong adventure. He could spend any amount of money. He had a thousand women at his side. He had no boundaries on his pursuit of the good life, of pleasure, and he explains where it can be found on earth. And his response to all of these experiments to try to find meaning, to find pleasure, is the Hebrew word hevel, or hevel, meaning a vapor or a mist, something that is temporary, something that is fleeting, uh, something that is a paradox. Sometimes this word gets translated as meaningless, which gets to the idea of it, but that may be more negative than what really is necessary. And here's why. If you were to steam up a kettle of water and you would look at that vapor, you wouldn't say that's meaningless. No, the idea is it's temporary. It will quickly disappear. And in a similar way, a lot of life is really good. It's beautiful, it's interesting, life is filled with moments of pleasure, but it's just like a vapor, and it has no lasting value. And the second you try to reach out and grab it, it just slips through your fingers. Life can be like a beautiful rainbow. It has its place, it can make your day, but don't get too excited because it won't last. I'm wondering how many of you have had the experience when you were a kid, you would see a rainbow so bright, so vivid, you thought you could just reach out and touch it. So you'd go running down the block and maybe it looks like it's touching down in that field. So you run ahead, try to find that end of the rainbow and it's just never there. It was beautiful, you couldn't ignore it. It's amazing, take out your camera, but really, it lacks substance. You know, a rainbow only is meaningless if you try to build your life upon it. And so that's the idea that Solomon goes through over and over in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's all vapor. And whether it's meaningless in your life is whether you try to build your life upon this, whether you try to find fulfillment in all these different areas. And so all throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon weaves this theme of evil. Uh, there's another theme that we need to introduce, and we'll need to understand a little bit about wisdom literature. Wisdom literature in the Bible is affirming truths without necessarily saying how they connect with another truth. And so often, writers will affirm two things that seem to be contrary um, but they're both true. And so, for example, we could say that life can be very frustrating, but also awesome. We could say that people are both the most rewarding part of our life and the most challenging parts of our life. 
We could say that responsibility both makes us happy and miserable. How many of you have a dog? How many of you have a love-hate relationship with your dog? You love your grandchildren. If you have grandchildren, you look forward to their visit and you can't wait until they go back home with their parents, right? This last week, my parents gave me a priceless gift. On Tuesday night, I dropped them off. And Wednesday morning, Joni and I went to the airport all by ourselves. It was the best flight ever. It was so bumpy, but there were no kids. It was awesome. Running a marathon. How many of you have ever run a marathon? Few of you. It is excruciating and exhilarating. It's both happy and sad to watch your kids grow up. The very same thing can be true. Opposite emotions. And so Solomon, when he talks about wisdom, he's going to introduce us to all sorts of similar contradictions that we grapple with. And then Solomon will make a powerful observation. So we're going to look at two different passages tonight from Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and chapter 2, which will make three different points about the problem of wisdom. Now Solomon's wisdom was world famous, and we're told in the Bible that his level of wisdom was supernatural, that it was given to him by God. This gifting brought him riches and honor. It produced justice and prosperity for his people. He attracted admiration and visits from dignitaries all around the world. Now, I think it's fair to say we may underappreciate the magnitude of what Solomon had. When Solomon first became king, he offered to God 1,000 burnt offerings. His heart was so bent on putting God first, he wanted God to be at the center of everything. And so God was so pleased with the attitude of his heart. He said, in return, Solomon, you can ask for whatever you would want, and I will grant it. And Solomon, he doesn't wish for more wishes. He wishes for wisdom. He said, I'm just a young man, and man, this job is greater than my abilities, and so I'm going to need great wisdom to rule these people of yours, to discern, to carefully apply the law, to skillfully use this position you have given to me. And so the Bible says that he was given wisdom greater than anyone who had ever lived and anyone who would live. Later on in 1 Kings, we read, of this wisdom making an impact on the world around him. 1 Kings 4.29 says, God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and a breath of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than all the wisdom of all the people of the east and greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than anyone else. And his fame spread to all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs numbered 1,005. He spoke about plant life, from the cedars of Lebanon to hyssop that grows out of walls. He also spoke about animals and birds, reptiles and fish. From all nations, people came to listen to Solomon's wisdom, sent by all the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. The Bible says that his fame spread to one specific queen, the Queen of Sheba, 
She heard of his great wisdom, and then she planned a visit with the express purpose to put him to the test. And so she came with riddles. She came with difficult questions and conundrums. And whatever thorny questions she threw at him, his answers came back so clear, so powerful, so wise. Have you ever met someone like that? You just listen to them and they just cut through all of the mist. You're just dazzled. How did they do that? It was so clear. It was so simple. And that's exactly what the Queen of Sheba experienced, how she felt over and over. And here's her summary, 1 Kings 10.6. She said to the king, The report I have heard in my own country about your achievements and your wisdom is true, but I did not believe these things until I came and saw with my own eyes. Indeed, not even half was told me. In wisdom and wealth you have far exceeded the report I heard. There's a lot of wise people in the world, and Solomon, he surpasses them all. There are people that are so gifted with intellect and wisdom, it just, it makes your head spin. And so picture that person so eloquent, you envy them. It just seems like their brain is a sponge. They never forget a thing. That person who speaks pearls of wisdom into the most concerning of situations. The person that can solve all the puzzles or the Rubik's cubes or the mazes. And Solomon, he surpasses all of them. And so everyone looked to Solomon. They envied him for the ease at which he absorbed wisdom, how he processed it and used it. And so if anyone could have received meaning and purpose and happiness from wisdom, it's Solomon wisest man who ever lived and here's what solomon is going to tell us ecclesiastes 1:13. he said i applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens not only did he have a natural gifting but he applied diligence to it to develop it and make the most of that gifting and here's his conclusion I applied my mind to study and explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is crooked, verse 15, cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. And so here's what he concludes. He says that wisdom has limits. If you're going to look to education, to wisdom, to make you happy, you ultimately will be disappointed because wisdom, just like any other false god, doesn't possess power, and it results in contradiction. Solomon, he points out three different contradictions of wisdom in his experiment, and the first problem of wisdom is this, that wisdom is able to see the problem, but wisdom doesn't have the power to fix the problem. You see, I can discern what needs to change, but I can still have the inability, the power to make that change. It's the problem that every parent has felt. 
They look at their child and they say, I know what you need to do differently, but I can't do it for you. My hands are tied. My wisdom tells me you are headed to a collision course and destruction, but my wisdom can't change you. My words can't help you. The ultimate example of this in Solomon's day was in 1 Kings 3, and it's the story of two women. They both had infants, and in the middle of the night, one of the infants was accidentally smothered in the bed. Both mothers claimed that the child, the living child, was their own, and how would Solomon respond? He said, bring me a sword, and I will cut the baby in half. And based on the mother's reactions, he was able to discern who the true mother was. And that story is famous. Almost everyone knows it. Incredible justice. Amazing wisdom. But I want you to think, did Solomon's wisdom actually solve the real problem, the underlying problem? And it didn't. The mother, who was deceptive, probably did not go away a changed woman. I'm guessing she was humiliated. She hated the other mother. I'm guessing the relationship between those two women was forever severed. Did Solomon's wisdom turn a liar into a truth teller? No. Wisdom solved the problem of the baby, but it didn't solve the underlying problem of the heart. And so Solomon says the wise will discern, but they're powerless. There's a limitation that Solomon felt. We're always trying to make wisdom solve the problems we experience, and yet he concludes in verse 15, he says, you can't straighten out what is crooked, and you can't count things that are not there. Let if the heart doesn't have righteousness in it, you can't count it. Certain circumstances just seem crooked beyond repair, and no amount of meddling will make it whole. Wisdom sees the problem but isn't able to do anything about it. Trying to solve our problems by wisdom alone is like bringing a squirt gun to a gun battle. There's no power to affect change. And I can prove this because many of you would say the same thing as I, that I know more than what I'm willing to put into practice, right? Like if I were just to put into practice the things that I already know, the wisdom I have, wow, I'd go walk on water after life together. He says in verse 15, what is crooked cannot be straightened, what is lacking cannot be counted. Solomon is saying that the world is broken and a lot of people can't come to terms with that. That you can't fix it under the sun. You can observe the problem, but you will not be able to make it better. This is so at odds with what's within our heart. We want to see a problem. We want to fix it. Wisdom, in fact, cannot, without God, change it. That is the understanding of futility. One verse before, verse 14, he says, I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless. They are a chasing after the wind. You want to know what is futile, what is a waste of time, Solomon says? Thinking that your wisdom alone 
can change what's unchangeable. A stubborn refusal to accept the way that things are. You know, it doesn't matter how wise you are, you will not eradicate sin in the world. Your wisdom will not remove suffering. We, we accept it as part of a fallen world, and we set our hopes on an outside world beyond the sun. There is this thought that the problems that we're facing today, the problems in our city can be fixed by wisdom alone under the sun without the intervention of God. And they can't because things are twisted and things are lacking. Some would say, well, if we just get more technology, we can solve the problems. No. Maybe just a little bit more wisdom applied in the classroom and instruction methods will solve what's happening in homes. What's happening in homes be solved to solve crime problems. And it is all futile. They will not be solved apart from God. And so Solomon, he wrestles with this. He says the wise are powerless. And there's a second one he brings up in verse 16. He said, I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. Here's his point, verse 18. He says, for with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. Isn't that surprising? Isn't that a paradox? You would think everyone would choose, I would much rather be wise than to be a fool. But with wisdom comes a certain amount of misery. It's a similar idea that everyone would rather have more money than less money. And what do you do when you have money? You go out and buy a boat, right? But when you have a boat in Wisconsin, you got to wax that boat, you have to winterize that boat, you have to store that boat, you have to pull up the dock. None of that is any fun. And that boat will make you miserable. We sold our boat 25 years ago. <laughs> if you have one we can borrow, let us know. If I'm honest, you know, before I had kids, I had this formula. Good parents produce good kids. It's that simple. If you're a bad kid, you have bad parents, right? Wow. Life's a lot more complicated than that. <laughs> Wisdom seems to disrupt your joy. As you grow wiser, everything that just seemed so simple appears more complicated. I think of my best friend in Bible college. He also was the valid Victorian of the school. That wasn't why I became his friend. But we met in Hebrew class, and the only reason I passed two years of Hebrew because he was next to me and he tutored me, and I occasionally copied his homework. <laughs> After getting my degree, I decided, well, I'm probably good for a good while. I'm done with school. But Mike, he decided to go on. And so Mike would go on to study at Harvard Theological Seminary. Uh, he was the first person I ever knew that went to Harvard. 
And then when he was done with that, he studied at Hebrew University in Jerusalem, and there was a few stints at Oxford as well. Mike knows the Bible inside and out. Mike can read the Bible in Hebrew. A few years ago, my friend was in town, so we decided to get breakfast. I hadn't seen him in about 10 years. And I noticed a change in his demeanor throughout the conversation. He seemed really disinterested or uncomfortable any time things started shifting towards faith, any sort of spiritual discussion. And so finally, I asked him, hey, just tell me, who, who is Jesus? And I'll never forget his response. He said, I don't want to think about that. I don't want to talk about that. I don't know what stole Mike's joy. He was studying at archaeological sites, and in some cases there's dispute. Okay, so is the tomb of Jesus in the garden? Is it at the Holy Sepulcher? I don't know if it was living in a Jewish culture that he found no believers around him. Nobody believed what he believed, and that was disorienting. Verse 18 says, with much wisdom results in much vexation. Increase in knowledge is an increase in sorrow. Solomon says that wisdom tastes great going down, but it leaves a bitter taste. And Solomon says, if this awaits the wise, then why be wise? All that wisdom, all that collecting of knowledge just to make yourself miserable, what is the point of that? And lastly, we'll look at the third contradiction. The theme of wisdom continues in chapter 2. And if you're ever going to make a case of how Ecclesiastes could point for our need for a Savior, how it points to the gospel, I think it's this passage right here. Ecclesiastes 2.13 I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise have eyes in their heads, while a fool walks in the darkness. But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. Then I said to myself, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, this too is meaningless, for the wise, like the fool, will not be long remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die. So I hated life, because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless a chasing after the wind. And so what he's saying is be wise or be a fool. Win the Nobel Prize or steal a car. In the end, it makes no difference at all. If it's really true that under the sun, uh, we cease to exist when we die, then what will our life really have mattered? Will it matter what you did? Of course it won't. Where is it all heading? Solomon says, everything is headed towards a grave. Let death is the great equalizer. And no matter how high or noble you lived in life, when it's all said and done, everyone ends up either scattered, 
in an urn or in a grave. You know, when we're young, we just bolt out. We have so much ambition in life and we stay in our lane. And so we're, we're sprinting towards finish line after finish line. We're trying to outpace our peers. And so the elderly Solomon, he looks ahead and he sees the finish line and the finish line startles him because it's a grave. When we start off in life, we try to get good grades in school so we can get into a good college. We want to get into a good college so we can get a good job, so we can make good money. We want to make good money so that we can then retire. And then as we retire again, we're racing towards this finish line of death. And Solomon looks at this, and it horrifies him. And he says, why bother running the rat race if the end of the race is just your own funeral. And so he says, life is just a sprint to the funeral. And after your funeral, you're forgotten. 60 years after your funeral, no one will know whether you lived. I do a lot of funeral planning, and so a lot of times I like to ask about family. And so I'll ask, who was your grandpa or grandma? And so many times people don't know the answer. They don't know the name of their grandpa or grandma. And so let me quiz you on this. You should know that. We'll start one harder. How many of you, you know the name of your great-grandpa? Okay. How many of you know the name of your great-great-grandpa? Okay, I'm not going to quiz you, but very few people know. All it takes is three generations, and most people will be forgotten. Death is the great equalizer of both the wise and the fool. And so, yes, it's better to be wise in this life, but on the long term, will it make much of a difference? Solomon concludes, no. He says, it's meaningless if you set your hope on things that are under the sun. If you think life is all about acquiring wisdom and education, you will be miserable because wisdom will fail you. But like all things, wisdom is beautiful in its place. And it has a moment. It's a vapor. But what was wise 50 years ago is probably not considered wise today. It fades. Knowledge changes. And idolatry is trying to grasp and hold on to the rainbow. And it doesn't have the substance. You and I, we can make an idol out of anything. And what Solomon does all throughout the book of Ecclesiastes is he's revealing the idols in our life. If you think the idol of money will make you satisfied, one day you'll find out that this one extra check purchasing that car, that home, that trip cannot bring satisfaction Solomon says, if you think that the pleasures of life are great experiences, that just one on top of the other, that that can fill the hole, that that eventually that will fall flat. If you think that education and just being wise and adding degree upon degree, eventually that will disappoint you. It can't satisfy you. Jesus said he didn't come for the healthy. He came for the sick. And so as you read Ecclesiastes, what Solomon is trying to do is he's trying to make you and I sick to realize that all those things we place our dreams, our hopes in will eventually let us down. They're temporary. 
and that you and I, we need to reach beyond the sun. We need to hope for something that is eternal, something that does have meaning, something that is powerful, something that does bring presence into our life. And so as we close, I have one more um, passage up here that I want you to look at at your table and just discuss what is the wisdom principle found here. Uh, but before we do that, I do want to say a prayer over you. And so, Lord Jesus, Lord, many of us, Lord, have come to the same conclusion that Solomon has come to, and that you're the only one worth living for. You're the only one that we can build a foundation upon. Lord, you're the only one that can hold a family together. You're the only one that doesn't fall flat, that doesn't disappoint, that doesn't go back on their word. You're the only one that isn't like a mist and fleeting. And so we thank you for that. Thank you for the disappointments in our life when maybe we thought it was a relationship, that that would finally be the thing, but that relationship faded away and we had to turn to you. Thank you. Thank you for the time where the job ended, the offer wasn't extended. That thing that was the idol in our life, Lord, that again, it disappointed, and thank you for showing us that, that that is not what we truly need. It could be your very first time stepping in foot in this building tonight. We want you to know that you're why we have church, that there's a place for you here, that God cares about you. You wouldn't have been here if he didn't draw you first. And he wants to draw you close tonight. He wants to smash all the other idols that will disappoint. He wants to fix your focus on him, things that will never fail you. And so if you are feeling far and distant from God tonight, you can simply start your journey by saying, Jesus, I give you my life. I give you the disappointments, the dead ends, Jesus, the sin, I give you my life. And if you do that, he's going to come inside of you. He's going to live you, live inside of you. He's going to change you. He's going to give you a life that's incredible. And so thank you, Jesus, for what you're doing in life together. Thank you for this community of believers. God, continue to use them. Lord, let us build one another up. Lord, life is hard. And so, Lord, let us always speak hope and encouragement and faith into one another. And so we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you so much for being with us for the Life Together podcast. It's even better when we get to see you in person. You are invited to join us on Wednesday evenings here at Oak Creek Assembly of God. We are a church that exists to reach our world for Christ as we lead people to discover and become who God has created them to be. Find us online at oakcreekag.org.